This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 613 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Brandon Drayman. Now, Brandon is a veteran of the Indianapolis Fire Department, but also one of the leaders when it comes to mental health and peer support within the fire service. So we discuss a host of topics from his very interesting journey into the fire service, his own very powerful addiction story, how we move the needle in mental health in the first responder professions, and so much more. Before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 600 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Brandon Drayman. Enjoy. Well, Brandon, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you for your patience. We were just about to record and my Windows decided to do an update right before our conversation. (laughs) Um, And secondly, welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. 
Uh, thanks, James. It's a pleasure, and, and I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. So very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am in Indianapolis, Indiana. So speaking of Indianapolis, you guys are about to host FDIC. So before I even get into your journey, I'm curious, how did that event find itself in your city? I'm not exactly sure of, of how the journey went. I, when I was still a volunteer firefighter, it was in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is about an hour and a half to two hours southeast of here. Uh, and then at some point, you know, Indianapolis has really done a lot of work to become a convention city. Um, we're laid out really well downtown for that. It's very walkable. Uh, so it has a lot of appeal there. We do a lot with the NCAA, NFL Combine, things like that. So it's, I guess, was somewhat natural that it ended up here, but it's been here as long as I've been on the job. So 20 plus years. And uh, this year, actually, their Jim's Con will be joining that um, as on the EMS conference is going to be at the same time as FDIC. They're kind of underneath the same umbrella. So it should be a, a pretty good show this year. But uh, yeah, it's always such a good time. And, and our fire department and neighboring fire departments provide a lot of resources. So we're, we're part of the action, part of the conference ourselves. Uh, so it's going to be an exciting week. And hopefully now that people are starting to move about the country a little bit more, uh, it's going to be uh, hopefully pretty well attended and, uh, you know, get back into the groove with the conferences here. Well, Anyone in the fire department knows that when we have an event in our city, it can definitely bring an increase in calls. I'm curious, FDIC coming to the city of um, uh, Indianapolis, what impact does that firefighter convention have on your call load? We definitely, it seems like, always have a few more working fires that week, um, whether we're just paying more attention to that or not, uh, you know, I'm not sure. I think also, you know, as far as EMS calls, there are a lot more people downtown. Uh, we do, you know, the conference itself, um, as far as medical calls and the way that it's staffed, they do a really good job with our safety officers that, that roam about the different hot sites and make sure that we have medical coverage uh, a lot of times on site and just kind of streamline that process. But it definitely Downtown, there's just a lot more people, um, you know, tens of thousands more during FDIC. And um, and we do, like, there's always an uptick in, in big fires that week. So I don't know what the correlation or causation may be there, um, but we definitely, we do see an increase. Are there any kind of um, urban legend firefighter, visiting firefighter related calls that you guys are run on that might be a little bit more bizarre? <sighs> No, not, <laughs> not that I can think of. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> That'd be some awesome stories. <laughs> All right. Well, then, so let's get to your chronological path then. So starting at the very beginning, tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, I, I was born and raised in Vincennes, Indiana. So it's in the, the southwestern part of the state uh, for any... Uh, history nerds in the audience. Um, India, or Vincennes was the first capital of the Northwest Territories uh, in the United States. So I think what later became Wisconsin, Michigan, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, I think that's those are the states, but we were the territorial land capital of that. Um, so small town founded in 17, early 1700, 1730, somewhere around there. So by Midwest standards, pretty old. Uh, so it was a cool place to grow up because there's a lot of history there. 
Um, good family dynamic. Um, I have one brother, you know, we went to 12 years of Catholic school. Um, I was an altar boy, that sort of stuff. Uh, my, my dad's a pharmacist. My mom stayed at home with my brother and I um, through grade school. My brother's a few years older uh, and she was a neurodiagnostic technician. So she did uh, EEGs and things like that at the hospital. Um, I, I mentioned I have one brother. Uh, he's also a firefighter. He's a chief of training for us here. Um, so we're both on, on the same department. I kind of followed in his footsteps uh, whenever I got involved in fire and EMS. So he's been a big inspiration for that. But uh, now we're, we're all up here. My parents moved up here um, to Indianapolis to be closer to the grandkids. So fairly, fairly tight family unit throughout our lives. So with your dad being a pharmacist and now with you, you know, being very well um, educated and, and immersed in, you know, trying to be the solution to the addiction epidemic that we have in the fire service. Have you had any conversations with your dad about the world of pharmacology and that he's witnessed over the last few decades? Yeah, we, so dad's interesting. Uh, and I didn't understand it at the time, but dad never, he worked in hospital pharmacy for a long time. And he would not talk to pharmaceutical reps when they would come. He wasn't interested. He would read the trade journals and look at the science behind things, but he was not at all interested in the sales pitch and the, the pins or any of that, you know, the, the handouts or the vacations. He just, that wasn't his game. And I never understood it, but ultimately it's because of things like we've seen with uh, the opioid epidemic and, and, you know, drugs of that class and other classes as well that I think he was wise to. And he, he didn't want to get pitched a product. He wanted to know the science behind why it would or would not work. Um, and we've had some discussions about, um, you know, the, uh, the the show that came out on Hulu fairly recently uh, with, with Michael sick. Keaton. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, we had some long conversations about that. And he, was, he said, you know, that's that's the reality that on some level, I mean, the, the pharmaceutical companies have to make money and that you get politics involved with that. And as long as the right people are involved in that revolving door between corporate echelon and, and the decision makers, you know, in the administrative side that, uh, you know, you can kind of see that revolving door. And he said, that's, that's kind of how it's always been in, in pharmaceuticals. Uh, and that's why he was never interested in talking with those representatives. So it kind of all in recent years has come together for me to understand where he comes from. And, and I certainly didn't understand that as a kid. I was like, well, why wouldn't you want to get that information? But he, he just, I think was ahead of the curve on all that. Yeah. I'm actually getting Beth Macy who wrote the book dope sick. That was all based on, um, and she's got a new book coming out. So she's going to be coming on soon when that's kind of ready to be promoted. But I was, I was so struck by that story. I mean, I live in uh, Florida. So when I first moved to the US, we found ourselves in South Florida in Broward County. So that was the hub of the pill mills. Um, obviously, you know, in our profession, we get to see behind the scenes when it comes to the real impact of, you know, addiction, whether it's prescribed or not. Um, and then the, the, um, the salespeople, like you said, when I first got to South Florida specifically, I remember waiting just for a simple antibiotic prescription for, uh, you know, a, an infection that I'd let given some time, try and get it to self-resolve. It hadn't. Um, and just waiting for hours as, you know, 
um, sales rep after sales rep came in, looking like they just came out of a you know makeup counter in some department store, um, and it was amazing, absolutely amazing. And then you start educating yourself more about the sales behind so many of these, and even Viagra, like ED, erectile dysfunction, from what I understand, was dreamed up in a publicity department, not in a, a medical lab. Uh, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. It's it. I've always been a little curious that the physicians prescribe medications at all. Like to me, it makes sense that the physician diagnoses, Hey, this is the infection or this is the disease. I'm going to send you to the pharmacist to figure out what meds you need to be on because they're the experts in that. It's always struck me as weird that the physician does the diagnosing and the prescribing rather than leaving the prescribing to the medicinal experts who are the pharmacists. That's always seemed kind of backwards to me. Now with that lens and, and being completely apolitical, um, with this last two years, there have been certain pharmaceutical products that have been brought to our attentions, whether it's vaccines, whether it's some of the therapeutics. Um, just from a pharmacist lens, especially a pharmacist who seems to have the ethics to do the research rather than be skewed by um, reps or by TV channels, what has your dad's observation been of you know the, the efficacy of some of the things that we've been told about this last two years? hasn't said a whole lot. Um, and I, you know, I, I do, we're, uh, friends on social media is where does that sounds with, with the parent, but, uh, I do, I think, you know, we show a little different sides, uh, versus face-to-face -face conversations versus social media. And I know, um, like for example, the, the, he's not vaccinated. Um, and I don't know if he has conscientious objections to that or what they may be, but I know that, that he has not done that. Um, that's like the big thing that stands out to me uh, was his decision not to do that. Um, and I don't know as far as any other things that have come out with, you know, he's, yeah, I know he like with masks and things like that, uh, he has his own uh, opinions. So he prefers not to wear a mask or, um, and he didn't get the vaccine. So I don't know if that's kind of what your, your lens is with, with the question or if there's, you know, other, other things there, but those are two things that come to mind for me. Yeah, no, I mean, my lens is purely someone else's lens. I mean, I, so I did a, a great um, episode. I had a great guest, should I say, who was a doctor who was in Austin area. His ICU was full of people that were dying, that weren't vaccinated. So it was a very objective conversation. He laid down, you know, where vaccinations are worked, you know, are working. He was very opposed to mandates. So very, very middle of the road. But it's just, I think it's very interesting hearing all these different people because, I mean, ultimately it comes down to, a choice, but I think when it comes to medication, a pharmacist's view, especially someone who seems to be diligent with their research, is you know just one of many voices that you can put into your kind of smorgasbord of of not even opinions of of, of input of research before you, the individual, make your own personal choice. Yeah, absolutely. Conversely, we're going to get to sleep deprivation. We're going to talk about how <laughs> vulnerable the, the first responder population are, but that's uh, that's for down the road. Um, so while you were in the school age, what kind of sports and or fitness were you doing then? Uh, I played um, basketball and baseball, uh, played basketball up until my junior year of high school and wasn't a huge basketball fan, but it was Indiana. So uh, that, you know, it was just kind of one of the things that you you did and particularly a small high school was play basketball. Uh, I also played baseball, which I loved. That was primarily just playing those sports kind of was a year round activity. 
So the conditioning that went along with that is what I did. I've never been like a really big weightlifter, anything like that, just more uh, cardio. And I was always very lean growing up. So just the running that went along with baseball and, and basketball and, and those workouts just to play sports is all that I really did. I've, I hated running growing up. I, basketball conditioning was like the bane of my existence because I knew we'd have to go run three miles every day and hated every second of that. Now I run for pleasure, which is kind of a weird turnabout. <laughs> but um, but back then, that was really it. it was just, you know, staying prepped for the games. And, and I was always, you know, lean enough and in shape enough that I could just kind of walk in off the street and play. So I was very fortunate in that regard, but that was, and, and always also riding bikes a lot, not something that I see a whole lot of anymore, uh, but growing up in a small town, you know, we get on our bikes and head out and ride to lakes and streams and whatever else we could find to do to pass the days in a small town. And we rode our bikes everywhere. So I think there was more just because if you wanted to do anything, you had to exert yourself uh, moderately to get anywhere that I think we're missing out on, on some level now in a lot of cities, because there's just, it's either too dangerous because there's not, you know, a safe place to ride a bike or we're just getting lazier. I don't know. Um, but, uh, that was something we rode bikes a lot. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the most amazing things was at the beginning of the pandemic, when everything stopped, when everyone was off the roads, and you saw, you know, this regeneration, you saw, you know, how much potential space we have for, you know, community and exercise. And, you know, obviously you had to remove all the cars to see that. But it also made me realize how few pedestrian areas we have in um, the US. And obviously you've got New York City and some of those places that you can walk alongside traffic. But if you look at this, many, many places in the UK, Holland, where you have entire areas where it is safe to ride a bike. You know, I think that you're absolutely right is I think fear is a big part of it and, and pollution as well. No one wants to, to be riding while dump trucks go and spew diesel fumes in your face. So I think if we put more effort into creating, you know, a, a sidewalk off from a road so that you could actually enjoy riding around or pedestrianizing downtown areas. So you park on a, you know, a bit further out and then you get to walk everywhere. I think that would be huge on, on improving everyone's health. And it's amazing. I noticed, you know, as somebody who ran regularly, uh, we've got a couple, there's an old railroad that ran through behind my, the town where I live called the Pinsey Trail, the old Pennsylvania Railroad, and they, they turned it into a greenway. And I, that's where I usually run. And pre-pandemic, I was regularly myself and, and over a three mile stretch, I'd see one or two other people. The pandemic hit and it was at times almost shoulder to shoulder on that trail because people were trying to find that space where they could be outside, be in the open air, get some sunshine, you know, pass the time with, with other members of the family. And that's when it really hit me that kind of the same thing. We just, we really don't have a lot of good spaces where you can do that around here. Um, so it got packed uh, on times that were otherwise would have other just been me and, and a couple other people. Now, when you were in that school age, what were you dreaming of becoming career wise? I, so you know, growing up, one of the big shows was Emergency when I was a kid, uh, Johnny and Roy and, and L.A. County and, you know, Squad 51, all that. So I always kind of had it in my heart that I wanted to be a firefighter. Uh, in fact, in, even in kindergarten, I remember um, we had to draw a picture about what we wanted to be, and I drew a fire engine. Um, so it's something that, like, I just always wanted to be a firefighter. 
And I kind of veered off that path for a while, but uh, it was always, I think, in my blood that that's what I wanted to do. Uh, and so, yeah, even growing up as a kid, this is what I wanted to be. Now, I know when we get a bit further into your story, we're going to talk about, you know, your own mental health journey, which which obviously ends in, in growth and, and where you are now. But with so many people in our profession, this is something that I only became aware of after interviewing for a while. A lot of people talk about what we see when we're wearing the uniform, but very few people talk about what happened to us before we ever put a uniform on. And it's definitely a resounding common denominator in many, many of the stories I've had on here, especially if people found themselves deep in addiction or, or suicide attempts and those kind of things. When you look back, are there any elements of childhood trauma you attribute to your early life? Um, there, there probably are some um, that I think are there. Um, nothing that I can necessarily pinpoint, but I know like just it, at times with some bullying and kind of, you know, my personality, I've, I've always been really, really introverted um, and being put sometimes in situations where, you know, forced to be, be part of a group and then feeling like an outcast. And then maybe some of the, the bullying that would go along with that. Um, you know, my, my ACE score is not, that high comparative uh, to a lot of other people I know who've struggled with these things, uh, my adverse childhood experiences. Um, it's in a fairly normal range, but I think you're absolutely right that we, we do see a lot of pervasively high adverse childhood experiences scores on people who are drawn to professions uh, that involve helping others, whether that's the military, fire, law enforcement, nursing, um, things like that. We do see, a fairly common thread of childhood trauma running through that. And it's interesting when you kind of break that down as well. I think there there are many elements that that um, you know are the reasons for for the, why people are drawn to our profession. One, I think, is you know the wanting the buck to stop there. If they've had abuse, they they want to become the protector. But I think another area that sadly isn't resolved by joining our professions is. When you're chasing adrenaline, when you have these uh, professions that keep you very, very busy mentally and physically, it's also a way to fill the void, which mm -hmm. is great at the beginning. But sadly, as you start progressing into the profession, it becomes a compounding factor. Yeah, I mean, there's the the whole idea and it's what we see with addiction and with, you know, whether it's activities, substances, is this idea that whether it's an escape, like we want that to be permanent. And I think you're right. We see that with, with the adrenaline junkie that, uh, you know, I love that high that I get. I love that, that dopamine hit that I get when I drive down the street and we honk the horn and people wave and it's not permanent. And then when that goes away, then I have to fill that void with something else and you can't make runs all the time. So what am I going to fill that with? when I'm not getting that fixed, so to speak. And that's when, you know, we start to see, I think a lot of the behaviors that end up getting people in touch with somebody like me on the behavioral health and addiction side to get some, some treatment um, is because trying to fill that void with something that just is not designed to last. And is like you said, in the short term is a, can be a really great thing. Uh, but in the long term trying to chase that down just leads to more and more problems and they compound and they become chronic. And eventually we need to 
get that help and figure out how we're going to ask those questions and get through the door to get that assistance. And that's a whole other difficult process for, for so many of us. Absolutely. Well, I know your journey into the fire service began at quite a young age. So talk to me about finding volunteer firefighting. Well, I mentioned earlier that my brother uh, is in the uh, in the career as well. So we he started to volunteer with the Vincent's Township Fire Department uh, in our hometown, uh, I think when he was 18. Um, a year after that, when he was 19, I was 16. And we were able to join the fire department at 16 as a junior firefighter. So we didn't go in, couldn't put ourselves in any type of life-threatening situation, but we would, you know, hang out outside, help guys change out their air bottles, uh, clean up the SCBA after fires, restock. Uh, we could ride along on calls. So, you know, the uh, restocking, things like that. So I started out with that when I was 16. Uh, you were also, and I don't know what the standards are anymore, but back then you could uh, also drive an ambulance. You didn't have to be 18 or anything. You could you could drive an ambulance at 16. So I got involved with um, in a private ambulance service, driving ambulances and and wheelchair vans and things like that as well. And as part of that, even though I wasn't put into life threatening situations, you were still close enough to the action that as a 16 year old, um, either driving an ambulance or being on scene with you know fatalities and and things like that. I saw enough that I certainly wasn't prepared to deal with emotionally and, and psychologically that I think stuck with me. Um, when I turned 18, I became a, a full-fledged volunteer firefighter. I got my EMT certification as soon as I turned 18. My first 911 call on the ambulance was on my great uncle. He had shot himself in the head. Um, and it was one of those weird things where I didn't know his address, but as we got closer and closer, I knew that we were getting closer to the family farms because uh, we all live fairly close. So uh, we pulled up on the scene and I knew where we were. And my brother came out and he told me, hey, you know, this is who it is. So just kind of brace yourself. He's still alive, but not by much. Uh, so treated him on the way to the hospital. He ended up dying a couple weeks later. But I can remember, like, even though there wasn't anything we were, we were ultimately going to do for him. He died secondary to a brain infection uh, from the bullet wound. But I can remember like being afraid to go to the funeral because I thought my, the family's going to hate us because we couldn't save his life. Uh, and that, you know, I just wasn't at all prepared. Yeah, I probably wouldn't be super prepared to deal with that even now, knowing what I know. But certainly at 18, I was not in a good spot to deal with that. And we had nothing in place. Uh, I got sent home after that call, because uh, I wasn't going to be any good on the ambulance, but I don't even remember going home that day. Um, like that's, I don't even recall that. I know I ended up at home, but I don't remember the drive. Um, so that was a, a big thing that stuck with me. Uh, I had, I had drunk before then um, in my early teen years, but I know that that the images and, and having lived through that did not help me um, as far as uh, substance use and, and emotional growth, because that, you know, that was a major hit at such a young age. Um, and then I think, you know, looking at how many things we're allowed to do when we're 18 um, that are life-threatening and, you know, it's just kind of the way we do things. Now that you're an adult, you can do this stuff. And it's, it's kind of scary to think the position that we put teenagers uh, with these decisions and, and oftentimes not any type of support. 
uh, we're getting better, obviously, but but it, it's kind of frightening when you really think about it. Well, I think that's another un- misunderstood or, or I guess under um, acknowledged area of the volunteer volunteer fire service. I've always worked in a different city than I've lived in California, in Florida, and uh, so I have the benefit of at least getting to leave that city when I go home. Now, when I go, you know, I'm, I'm in and out of that city a lot, so if I go and visit and do. You know, whatever it is I'm doing in that town, then I pass all these places that all these horrible things happen. But in the volunteer world, more often than not, you know these people, whether they work in the stores that you shop at, whether they're relatives. Um, so, you know, what what have you seen not only through your experience, but through all the people that you get to talk to now about that impact that a lot of us career people don't really think about? It's, I mean, it's profound. Um, and I, you're you're absolutely right. Whether you're law enforcement, EMS, fire, and smaller communities, even among career agencies, you know, firefighters in small towns live where they work and they know the people and, and it has a huge impact. Um, and you can't get away from it. You know, I, one of my friends from high school was hit by a train. Um, and I hated crossing that train crossing for a long time because it reminded me of that. And, there just wasn't a way around it. And we have a lot of, of really good programs in place now, but a lot of those programs that can help people cope and, and find resources are on the career side. You know, a lot of volunteer firefighters just don't have the systems in place that we do on the career side um, to get the assistance that they need. And a lot of, you know, you look at a lot of volunteer departments, which makes up obviously the vast majority of our first responder world in the fire service in the United States. But a lot of that's they're volunteer because they're in small communities and small communities, even with the best intentions, a lot of times don't have mental health resources for the general population, let alone a population of first responders. Um, So you have kind of a, a really double hit of I'm responding on people that I know I have to see their family members around town and at church and maybe when we're out to eat. So I get to relive that and wonder what they're thinking of me and my ability to perform and save their family member. And then even if I want the help, there's nobody really around who understands what I do and there's just not the resources in place to help me. Um, So it's a, it's a huge gap in our system. And, you know, some, luckily a lot of volunteers will have maybe an employee assistance program through their, regular employer, but even then, if we consider things like cultural competence and, you know, a clinician who really understands that, that service aspect and what we do for a living and as, as a volunteer firefighter is a whole other problem that even with an EAP on the civilian side, it may not be very well equipped to handle the issues that a volunteer firefighter is going to come to the table with. Absolutely. I've heard so many EAP horror stories on here. And of course, there are some great, great people out there. But when it's, it's, it's like Russian roulette. I mean, there are some, probably some great fit, um, counselors for people in their cities or counties. But the number of times I've had people on here that were truly in crisis, truly, you know, had already planned to take their own lives. And this is kind of like a last ditch attempt. And then they're in front of someone that's told them to get out. They can't help them or they've burst into tears or they found out they're actually, uh, you know, a child psychologist and, and the wrong counselor can be so detrimental to a responder when they walk through the door. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it, I'm with you. We see it a lot. We're fortunate that 
because of the programs we have in place here, we've developed a really strong relationship with our EAP and they know who we are and, and we, we meet, we, we sit down at the same table and lay out our expectations and it's been great. But oftentimes, you know, you get in a municipality, you get the low cost bidder and sometimes you get what you pay for. And it's not a good fit because they're covering a hundred or a thousand or tens of thousands of employees with this agency with such a broad spectrum of, of life experiences and professional expectations that it's not necessarily a good fit for anybody. Now, with you losing your great uncle in, in a, such a tragic way, what, how was that handled? Because what I see even today, even in 2022, and it breaks my heart, but I see it all the time. So-and-so, you know, department, um, lost firefighter X who died suddenly. And in my, you know, my mind, I know, okay, that's probably suicide or overdose, but mm -hmm. we're still not, we're not talking about it. And I get there's also the element of the family, you know, they've got to be ready to talk about it and the department, but it's even today, there's still so much stigma around it. And, and that's, you know, I think, totally hurting us truly dragging it out from the shadows. Back then, how was this suicide kind of received by the community? Were they able to talk about that or was it kind of suppressed like it has been for a long time? It was fairly suppressed. Um, small town, there was a great stigma associated with that. I think members of the family had shame associated with that, maybe some blame involved with what could they have done differently, if anything, all the things that we still normally feel. And I think those are our normal reactions. But I think the, the religious aspect of it, um, the, the beliefs that surrounded um, within the church about somebody who, who killed himself, uh, nobody wanted to talk about it. And obviously, those of us who were on the scene knew how he died. I assume most of the family ultimately did as well. Um, but nobody discussed the suicide aspect of it. Um, and it was, it, it's sad. He was a, a Korean war vet. He was in the Marine Corps. Um, he fought in, in uh, Pork Chop Hill, received the silver star for his actions. I mean, he was a, a decorated veteran and he had some really bad injuries through his life. He lived with chronic pain. And the pain just got to be too much after decade and decade. He, he saw it and into his pain. And that was unfortunately his decision in that regard. But it's, you know, you got to talk about that stuff. And, and it never was discussed. Uh, that's heartbreaking. And when you think as well about the, the, a lot of these discussions recently, as, as we withdrew from Afghanistan and now, you know, there's this uh, tension in you know Eastern Europe and Russia, and and it's just you know rearing its head again. You just touched on it before, like we have no problem sending 18 year old children basically to foreign countries to go and kill and defend this country, but there's never a discussion of you know what is the weight of that, what is the long term impact of the missing a leg of TBIs of the mental health trauma of chronic pain. And then, you know, I think you see, sadly, that manifested in what we're seeing now. Like this week alone, we just lost two Navy SEALs to suicide. And I know because mm -hmm. they were friends of my friends. And so, you know, this is a ripple effect that you never see discussed. The only time we really talk about, uh, you know, military suicide, veteran suicide is, is push-ups, mm -hmm. which I haven't seen push-ups fix any of this problem yet. So, you know, that's just a, it's a shiny object. It's kind of symbolism, but it's not, 
creating the conversation. So, you know, the, that's absolutely heartbreaking that, that he fought for this country. He defended the Korean people and then ultimately probably felt like he wasn't able to talk about it and didn't have the support to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, especially looking back and, and as many suicides as I've assisted, you know, in the aftermath and people who, who we've helped get the treatment that they need. And I think, you know, it, again, it's, it's part of that, that shame, I think, and the, and the guilt that we carry in the aftermath of a suicide, not that it's about me, but looking back, like if we would have had some of these things in place, could we have made a difference in his life? You know, and that's, it's those what ifs, but we still don't discuss it enough. And I, I automatically, the same thing when you hear someone died unexpectedly or died suddenly, immediately our brains go to overdose or suicide or both. Um, and we're going to fill in those blanks. The rumor mill is going to start. We know how we operate. Somebody's going to put the story out there, whether it's true or not. And rather than letting that narrative create itself through the rumor mill, we're so much better off if we confront it and say, yes, this person died by suicide and it's complicated and it's not as simple as they had a bad call. Um, this is a very complicated subject and our goal should be prevention and getting people help earlier so that they don't reach that point, like prevention, prevention, prevention. But what we, we end up putting out there when we refuse to talk about it and we just say somebody died suddenly, to me, all that does is tell the next person who may be having thoughts of suicide that that conversation is not welcome here, so I better just keep my mouth shut. And we just further stigmatize it by not saying what happened. And I, I wish we would, we would get better about that because I think ultimately it leads to more suicide. Absolutely. I've said it a lot. We're, the fire service is excellent at burying people. We're just not good at stopping them from dying in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> Sad but true. Um, all right. Well, then, kind of leading you through your career journey. So you were dreaming of becoming a firefighter. You're watching Emergency. You were volunteering now. Walk me through that journey because I know you found yourself taking a left turn <laughs> at one point. Yeah, yeah I did. So I, I went to um, junior college at Vincent University, studied business, and continued to volunteer and, and worked um, in college at a couple of different ambulance services. Graduated from Vincennes, and I uh, went on to get my bachelor's degree at the University of Southern Indiana down in Evansville. Um, and I get studied business with uh, finance and economics emphasis. Graduated from that program, and like to me, I was content being a volunteer firefighter. So I thought, you know, I'll get a job. I'll continue to volunteer. Um, and I had the opportunity that my grades were good enough, and. Um, for whatever reason, and I can't even remember why, but it, it got in my head that I could go to law school. Like, that seems like a cool thing to do, uh, go to law school. And maybe part of it was I didn't want to get a job yet, so I could continue uh, my professional academic career. So I ended up um, going to the Indiana, Indiana University School of Law in Indianapolis. Um, and along that line, I started exploring, you know, what careers could I have as an attorney? I looked into... Um, in particular, law enforcement, so FBI, CIA, uh, custom service, all that sort of thing. Like, is, was there a place for attorneys there? And there certainly was. So coming out of law school, I wanted to be um, a customs agent. And there was a, a track within customs for attorneys. 
Uh, so I applied to, to customs and went through that process and everything was looking good. I had um, my conditional offer uh, to go to work for the customs service and I had to get my last step. I had passed everything, but I had to get a colorblind test, which I failed. Um, I never, my dad's colorblind. I never thought anything about it, but uh, it turns out that I'm colorblind as well. And that was a disqualifying factor to be a federal uh, agent, at least with the customs service. So um, I've taken a past the bar, but now like my whole career track was gone because I, I couldn't do that uh, with the customs service or any federal law enforcement agency. So uh, I ended up, I took a job as a deputy prosecutor down in Vandenberg County, which is also uh, in Evansville and did that for a couple of years. I started out in the misdemeanor side and about six months after I started, I was promoted to director of the misdemeanor traffic division. Then about six months later, I was promoted to uh, chief deputy of, of felony filings. Uh, so I worked with all the detectives and, and helped figure out what further evidence we would need to charge certain felonies and, and handled all that administrative side. I was still in court a fair amount of time um, doing hearings and, and trial work. But the Evansville Fire Department had a station that was just very close to the city county building where I worked. And all day long, I was watching the engine and the truck and the squad roll out on emergencies while I was sitting at my desk you know, typing on my computer and taking dictation. And I was like, this really sucks. Like, <laughs> I don't want to sit here and watch fire trucks. I want to be on a fire truck. So um, my brother was already uh, had a few years on the job up here. Um, we were talking and he said, you know, we're hiring up here. You should, you should put in um, and see what happens. So that's what I did. And then I ended up uh, making that, that big transfer uh, from a college student to attorney the firefighter, uh, but that's kind of how that all all played out and why I ended up practicing law for a bit. I, I came up here and, and after I got on the job, had you know a very small private practice for a few years, but it was just not anything that I was ultimately interested in and uh, ended up just stopped paying my attorney fees and just kind of let that go. Um, but uh, it was definitely a, a, a weird road getting here. Well, speaking of colorblind, it's funny. I listened to you on Jim Bernica's podcast, who's been on the show as well. And I heard you tell that story. I had the exact same thing happen to me in England because I wanted to be a fireman since I was little. And touching on our previous conversation, I don't think I would have been ready physically or mentally when I was 18. I was very, <clears> very small. I mean, maybe mentally because I grew up on a farm and saw, you know, all kinds of stuff. My dad was a vet, but physically, I don't think I would have. I think I don't know if I had the fortitude. Um, but it was exactly like you said, you're colorblind. You can't pass this, you know, little dot book test. And you just have to like, take a step back and ask the person, you know, what color is that tree? It's gray. What color is that car? Gray. Okay. Now you're actually colorblind. What color is that tree? Green. You know, what color is that woman's dress? So oh, it's a navy. No, it's actually more of a black. You know, okay. Mm -hmm. I get it. Well, you and I can't be fashion designers, but we can still be firefighters. And so that sticking to that book is absolutely insane in 2022. You're not legally blind, like you have no eyeballs or you're 2020. There's a complete spectrum of vision, you know, um, mm -hmm. analytics. And it's the same in the color vision world. So I ended up challenging it. The doctor pointed at stuff in the medical room. Um, and I've said, that's red, that's blue, that's, you know, whatever. This is here in America now. And they're like, all right, sweet, you passed. 
And I was like, that's it. So I couldn't be a fireman. And it wasn't meant to be a fireman. And the universe God had clearly dictated that my, you know, journey was supposed to be transatlantic. But there was the same exact test that stood me, you know, stood between me back then and me in the US. And I think that's your story is what people need to hear. Like, you have to be able to challenge some of these tests because they're just downright wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so now, the same thing with our physicals. We start off with the Ishihara book or whatever the the dot test is, and it's always the same result that I I can't pick out any number at all, or at least it's the number or the letter that tells you you're colorblind. And then they get out bottle caps and say, "All right, essentially." set up a stoplight with a red, yellow, and a green. And it's like, boom, boom, boom. Okay. You're good to go. Like (laughs) we go through all that for it's so pointless in the end. Absolutely. Well, speaking of um, new hire, because I want to get to this before we kind of translate transition to your, you know, journey through Indianapolis. But we talked earlier about trauma and ACES scores and, you know, what we have prior to, um, putting on the uniform a concept that kind of hit me uh i don't know probably a couple years ago now i had the good fortune of working for multiple departments east coast and west coast i always call myself like a fire gypsy because it gave me a very unique lens and one of the common denominators was how much money was spent on polygraphs and on these psych tests and the psych tests and i'm sure there's you know official names for them but basically the the bubble you know bubble answer sheet and they have hundreds and hundreds of questions in there do you like rabbits do you like you know winter do you like smiles do you like touching kids do you like books Mm -hmm. you're like wait wait what what was that last one (laughs) um and so when i look back now they obviously the budget is already there for those two things neither of them tell you really anything what it really is if you check if you take a step back is checking boxes Okay, well, Brandon went, you know, went crazy. Well, we tested him and everything said it was okay, so it's not our problem. Versus investing in you as a young man, maybe giving you an opportunity to have, let's say, five sessions with a counselor as you go through your three-month orientation, six-month probation, whatever it is, so that we can allow our new hires to start addressing any trauma they might have brought in and create a relationship with a counselor so as they progress through their career there is no oh let me play the eap russian roulette you have a go-to person and it 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 always blows me away because when you look at polygraphs for example they're complete smoke and mirrors it's literally a magic trick to get you to confess so if we took that same exact budget and as we brought in new hires and we gave them physical training to give them X amount of counseling as they come in so that then we can create that relationship and maybe address some of the things that they brought into the profession right at the front door. I think that's brilliant. And I'm right on board with you that 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 the, the long test that you're talking about, the MMPI, like we get asked the same question 10 different ways over, you know, however many hundreds of questions. I don't know, and I'm honestly not sure if that's measuring for, you know, some type of psychopathy or or sociopathy or whatever it may be, but obviously on some level, whatever it's supposed to be doing, it's not doing enough because we see the problems that we see. Getting to the idea of the importance of prevention when it comes to, you know, that's really how we prevent suicides is by preventing the depression and the addiction and everything else that leads up to that. And one way that I think we should be really promoting that is once a year 
going and talking to a social worker or a psychologist, just like we do a physical for our regular body, everything else, doing that once a year for mental health reasons. And with your idea of establishing that, I, you know, let's make that contact. Let's have you talk to somebody X number of times during your probationary period or during the academy. We're setting up that relationship. We're removing that taboo of how difficult is it to make that call and talk to a social worker? Well, you've already done it four or five, six times in your first year to help make sure that you're fit for the job and we can resolve any issues before they really get out of hand. And then you set yourself up one with, with coping skills that are going to benefit you uh, throughout your career. And two, if things do get overwhelmed and it, you know, it happens, uh, even with people who are really well-prepared psychologically for this job, you still have times where something hits you sideways and you need, need a boost or you need to talk to a pro. If we can do that early on in people's career and shift that paradigm to where people aren't afraid to make that call and they know how to do it and they know what to expect, then when they do get hit sideways by that call or, or their marriage or their kids or whatever it may be, finances, they know how to do it. Uh, and we start nipping those problems in the bud. I mean, I think for the investment, I think we would see a lot more, even if, if pre-employment, rather than screening for psychopaths or sociopaths, they actually screen for depression and adverse childhood experiences. To me, that would be a better investment to get that baseline than what we currently do with what you said, you know, the smoke and mirrors of, of polygraphs and that sort of thing, for sure. Yeah, well, I always said as well, I think background checks give you the best insight into someone because, you know, if we if we have erratic behavior, then there's probably going to be some sort of, you know, record on the legal side that will show who we are. But those two tests, you know, I mean, short of testing for being a psychopath, which as we'll get into, I think that's where a lot of the compounding elements, including sleep deprivation, contribute to that kind of behavior ultimately. Um, you know, if, if at 18, 20, 25 years old, you haven't exhibited psychopathic behaviors by that point, you know, being arrested for torturing bunnies in your backyard, then you can probably say, okay, this is a good candidate as of now. We have a probationary year, which we can, you know, let someone go within one year. But let's, you know, as you said, the prevention side, let's give them the physical skills and test them physically. And let's give them the mentally, mental skills when we test them mentally, because you are going to get tested. As you said, one of your first calls could be something horrendous. And I heard you mm -hmm. talk about one of your other early calls where um, a whole family was killed and you responded to it. So, you know, we're getting our, our children, our 18 year olds that may or may not have trauma. And then we're bringing them in and exposing to them immediately and we've tested to see if they can take you know host packs up and down the tower but we haven't tested to see if they can handle some of that horrendous stuff that we get to witness on a daily basis yeah absolutely that uh and i wonder how many people get screened out because of what we do now versus how many people we know are going to ultimately i mean the it's so staggeringly lopsided to the number of firefighters who are are going to be better served with depression treatments and screenings and PTSD and anxiety and sleep deprivation and things like that, talking to a professional versus how many they catch pre-employment with the other testing. Like, I don't, I don't think there would be any comparison that the return on investment would be much higher to put that money elsewhere. Absolutely. Well, you were sitting in the, um, you know, the, the legal field, as it were, not really loving pushing papers and 
attending core. Um, I want to get to the transition, but just, just very briefly, again, as you went through your own path and now you're counseling people with all levels of addiction, what, if any, was your perspective of the legal impact of addiction? Because just to preface it, I talk a lot on the show because I've witnessed it firsthand in Portugal and some other places. To me personally, as a firefighter paramedic from a different country originally, um, when I witness what we do to addicts in this country, not, not people selling drugs, not people smuggling, but the, the illegality of being an addict, I think that we've seen this hundred year war on drugs as an epic failure for the addicts themselves. Did you get any perspective of that when you were in the legal position that you were in? I absolutely did that. So a big part of why I didn't like what I did was the war on drugs. Um, I, the people that we saw coming into court with addiction issues really weren't that happy being addicts. <laughs> they, <laughs> surprise, they surprise. <laughs> yeah, they weren't living the dream when it came to their heroin addiction or whatever it might have been. And we had a one size fits all. You're going to do 12 step and you're going to do this and you're going to do that. And this is how your recovery will look. And if you don't do it, then we're just going to lock you up and fine you until you know, you can't afford to live anymore. And then on top of that, once you, even if you comply with everything we're saying to do, now you've got a felony. So good luck getting a job and then dealing with life on those terms. Like it was, it's all backwards. And I, I didn't want to be a part of that. And it really, it did, it bothered me a lot as a prosecutor and, and even things like, you know, asset forfeiture that, you know, law enforcement agencies can, can get property and, and money as part of this creates the wrong incentives to keep it going um, versus trying to get people help. And I, we are seeing a, a trend in jurisprudence in the United States, and, and it's probably already going on in other countries where we have drug courts. So it's not perfect, but hey, we have a system in place where they're trying to remove some of the punitive nature of drug offenses uh, to get people help. We have recovery coaches who work in probation departments. So people who maybe have a criminal record and certainly have an addiction history, sit down and work with people and, and say, you know, what does recovery look like to you? Does it mean that you stop cold Turkey? Does it mean that we get you clean needles? So you're not, you know, catching hepatitis or spreading hepatitis. That's a win in my book, uh, harm reduction. So we are having those conversations, but I know even in Indiana, we, you know, a County recently had a, a really good needle exchange program after a pretty profound HIV outbreak. Uh, and they stopped funding for that this past year after, and it made a huge difference. Even the the deputies came out in favor of of keeping it and it, it did not get funding and things like that. Just, it's such a disservice from a public health perspective, but also just to put some humanity back in this conversation that, that addicts are people we're talking about. And I don't know any addict who set out to be an addict. Uh, it's, it's a byproduct of a lot of other things that are going on in their life. Um, but we treat them, like you said, we, we criminalize it and it becomes just so dismal that I agree that it, it, the way we've done it is not working. It never has. And, and I suspect that it never will. Well, that's so heartbreaking here, especially when there was so much money poured into this pandemic, you know, which we were told, or well, this is, you know, because of protecting you from, from this disease yet. We have one that we know. I mean, it's it's almost a given if you inject with a dirty needle that you're sadly gonna, you know, receive the HIV virus. And to not fund that 
you know, I've heard people say, oh, we shouldn't give Narcan, you know, they're not, they're not going to learn. And like, oh my God, you know, and especially when you take a step back and it's what we're going to discuss too, the socially accepted addiction, alcohol is rife in this country. Mm-hmm. If you take out the word alcohol and put the word opiates in or, or, or meth or, you know, insert whatever, all of a sudden you find yourself, you know, judgy as hell but it's exactly the same thing and i have lost personally three firefighters to opioid overdoses three that i knew personally and then you know so many are chronically addicted to to alcohol and you know so we in corrections in law enforcement in the legal community and in police and excuse me in fire in ems in dispatch we all have this addiction you know crisis going on so for people of those communities to demonize someone because they're not wearing a uniform and injecting to me is not only you know disgusting but it's also completely hypocritical as well yeah yeah and i i even look at other it's not a perfect parallel but we look at something like you know maybe a diabetic patient who that lets their doesn't monitor their blood sugar the way they should their sugar gets too low we end up getting in a fight with them because they're combative because they're confused and then we you know start our line we give them the d50 and they come out of it. And to me, how are we willing to do that and get in those fights and say that, you know, that's a medical condition, but when somebody overdoses and we go and give a drug to pull them out of it, it's not like these, they're medical conditions and they're treatable and people can recover from all these things. And until we can put them on the same playing field of these are disease processes or, you know, treatable conditions. You're, it, it, you're right. It doesn't serve people. And it's certainly hypocritical for those of us in the first responder world, knowing the ways that we behave day in and day out to judge other people for it. Uh, it's kind of vulgar and it certainly is not helpful. No. And like I said, it's been, it's been a hundred year longitudinal study that's ended in epic failure. And I always point this out on this. And, you know, it, it sounds like I'm being a dead horse, but we are because this hasn't been fixed yet. You know, it's the same as many of these other things, whether it's a cancer issue in, in first responders. I mean, there's so many areas, but the point that you hardly ever hear asked is why are the streets of Finland so safe? Why don't the, the police officers in Norway walk around wearing tactical gear? You know what I mean? Our, mm-hmm. our country has devolved because, you know, largely because of this particular kind of law that was put in place, because we look at broken homes. Well, again, go back multiple generations, create an environment where mental health is stigmatized, where addicts then get locked away. You get this compounding factor and then fast forward to 2022 and we have children murdering each other because they wore a different colored T-shirt and we have our cops being executed. And, you know, I mean, it's just it's just horrendous. And we've tried that way and it not only didn't work, it was it, it made things a thousand times worse. So to me, a true leader is gonna stand up in this country and explain to all of us in a very middle of the road way how this is a human and proactive element that will positively affect not only individuals' well being, but even things like crime and murder rates, all these areas. But you have to have someone who's brave and you have to have someone who understands that initially there's going to be pushback but if you educate and show the history and show other countries look you could you could 
actually have a community where you're not worried about your child getting struck by a, you know, a bullet in the crossfire. You know, this doesn't happen in certain countries. So that's, that's the thing that I wish would be pulled into the, into the main frame is not these extremists. Like every time we have some tragic event where a school is shot up, it becomes a gun debate. Well, how mm-hmm. about the mental health element and all these other contributing factors where most countries don't have school shootings? I mean, this is what we need to talk about. Yeah, it's I can't remember the percentage, but the percentage of of just prisoners in the United States versus our population worldwide is is phenomenally lopsided. The the amount of people we lock up. I think it, I think we have seventy five percent of the world's population incarcerated, if I'm not mistaken. And we that also have a very right. similar thing with the opioid use. I think we consume seventy five percent of the world's opioids too. Yeah, and that's I mean it's. Uh, that's difficult to even wrap your mind around <laughs> that we incarcerate that many people and such a large percentage are either directly related to some type of drug use or is a side effect or a result of that drug use, if not directly drug use itself. And it's, yeah, I mean, it all ties back to the failed experiment. Absolutely. Well, I want to get back to your, your journey. So, you decide to um, enter the fire service. You talked about following your brother. So, what what was that like um, when when you joined the department? What did the kind of mental health side look like? What was the environment then? And then walk me through you know your own mental health journey from there on in. Yeah, it. Um, this would have been in two thousand one that I, I joined um, up here, and it still wasn't something that we really talked about at all. Uh, we had an employee assistance program in place, but nobody, you know, I don't know utilization rates, but I'm sure they were very, very small. Um, and I, I was probably already drinking alcoholically at that point, um, coming on the job. Um, and just day in, day out, you know, that, that was accepted. So I kind of found a home with it. It was, you know, certainly drinking to that level was accepted in, in the law enforcement community. I was a part of prior to joining the fire service, it was part and parcel with uh, the fire service itself. Um, So like, I didn't really think that much of it because so many other people drank that way. And that's how problems were dealt with. Um, My first day on the street was nine 11, oddly enough. Um, And then, you know, things just kind of a fairly normal career from there. Like I think any other firefighter went to paramedic school a couple of years after getting hired, um, completed that, been a paramedic ever since. Um, Got married uh, just, I was in recruit school. I just graduated from recruit school when I got married. Then we had a a child several years later and my drinking just got worse and worse and worse. Um, And then finally in, In 2012, uh, I got called for a random drug screen breath test, uh, and I I blew positive at shift change. I felt fine. I actually joked on the way out the door that day that I guess I won't be seeing you guys for a while, just honestly tongue in cheek, because I didn't think I was going to have a problem. Um, But I had enough alcohol in my system from drinking on my night off that that I tested positive and, um, you know, ended up got suspended. I wasn't sure what was going to happen with my career, with my family. Things were already pretty, pretty strained with my wife um, because of my drinking. 
but I was convinced she didn't know what she was talking about because everybody I knew drank a lot and whatever. That's just how our culture was. Um, but that kind of really brought it home and went into to headquarters and uh, signed my suspension paperwork. And, and we had the option to, you can either take 10 shifts unpaid or you can take a 24 hour shift unpaid and agree to go see a counselor at our EAP. So for me, just financially, that was a better plan um, to take a 24 hour suspension and go talk to somebody at our EAP. And that actually, that turned out to be the best thing ever. Like in retrospect, I'm so glad that I got caught and that I was able to get the assistance and that I, I talked to a social worker who was very competent about what we did, what we do for a living. And he talked to me in the way that a firefighter needs to be talked to. It wasn't anything sugar-coated. It was very direct. And hey, if you want to get better, let's figure out how you're going to get better. And I'm fortunate that I worked for an agency that gave that second chance uh, because that's not the case in every agency. Um, and I, I definitely recognize how fortunate I was to have that. And then from there, you know, it kind of grew into a passion of mine to help other firefighters. And that's on some level what I've done ever since I got in trouble was try and help other firefighters who were either well down that road or starting down that road and wanted some help. Um, that's kind of a, a really brief snapshot of my career, but, um, but that's kind of how I ended up getting involved in, in behavioral health and peer support and all that, that aspect of, of what I do now. Now, when you look back, um, I've heard you talking about a spectrum of, you know, alcohol use, just like we talked about with colorblindness. Um, and I have just, just had like a three month abstinence. I was, I was a habitual drinker. Now, very, very small amounts really compared to, you know, a lot of the, the binge drinking stories I've had on here. However, it was absolutely a crutch to wind down. So I had a frequency problem. I was never drinking to to forget i wasn't drinking really even to sleep it was more just to unwind but it was so like i said habitual and it it took a little effort i really did to to get past that first couple of weeks and then you know kind of feel like, all right now it's lost the grip a little bit but there are there are so many different levels there's a lot of people that you know get off shift and and immediately are drinking there's some people that will get completely shit faced but just once twice a week so Kind of what was the progression of yours and where was probably the worst place that you found yourself? And then when you look back, why do you think you were drinking the way you were by that point? So there, there's absolutely a spectrum to all this. And the way addiction works, uh, and this is something that, that goes back to even Alcoholics Anonymous, is that you know drinking and addiction is chronic and it's progressive. Uh, and I think that's very true. Like it, once it sets its hooks in, like it's going to keep going unless you do something to intervene very actively, it will continue uh, to manifest in your life and it's going to get worse. Um, however, I think that when a lot of people consider particularly alcohol uh, and, and addiction, they think, well, the person with an alcohol problem is the person who gets up with a beer and goes to bed with a beer. Um, but I don't need it. Like if I don't drink, I don't have withdrawal symptoms. So I can't have a drinking problem because people who are addicted to alcohol have DTs and they, you know, throw up whenever they can't drink and they get the sweats and the shakes. I don't have any of that. So it's not a problem. 
the reality of it is way more people die every year from binge drinking than die from chronic drinking. Like that's just factual. So if you're, if your line of demarcation is whether or not I have withdrawal, your line is in the wrong place. And there are a lot of tests out there. Uh, the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, has a really good um, substance use disorder section in it with things that you can look at as a, as a layman and figure out whether or not you have a problem. And it starts from mild, moderate to severe. And a lot of firefighters are shocked by where they fall on that scale. I know I would have been because I started off, I think I had probably had my first drink around 13 or 14. Uh, I had my first beer and it was a nice release. Like I felt a little goofy. Uh, I didn't get sick the first time I drank. Maybe I would have been better off if I did, um, but I liked it. And it, it just kind of grew from there. And by the time I got in trouble, I mean, I knew when the pharmacies opened on my way home from shift and I would stop and get um, my big bottle of vodka at, at the CVS and I would start drinking and I would, you know, go through a half gallon to a gallon on my days off. Um, and, you know, I had a, a son at home that I would not have been on a lot of days capable of helping if he would have choked or needed assistance. Like that was, wasn't even on my radar. Um passing out and, and forgetting to pick him up from the sitter. And my wife would get off work and have to pick our son up because, you know, I was at home passed out on the couch. Um, but I still was convinced I didn't have a problem. Everybody else did. Uh, and it took me getting called to the carpet. Uh, despite my wife, again, telling me that, you know, you need to get some help. I wasn't going to listen to her. But when the job told me I had a problem, I actually, that, I did pay attention because I couldn't avoid it now. Like I was suffering some major consequences of that behavior, but I was not, I mean, I was a blob. Uh, I wasn't mean, but I was effectively no use at all, but I never drank on the job. And that's something else that, that, you know, listeners need to know is just because you're not drinking at the firehouse doesn't mean you, you don't need to address this issue. Um, because that was me. I thrived at the firehouse. Uh, it was when I wasn't with my brothers and sisters on the job and I wasn't getting that, that camaraderie and the goofing off and I would leave the job and then finances became a reality. Being a parent became a reality. My immaturity to deal with those things became a reality and I would medicate it away. And by the end of it, I didn't even enjoy, I would enjoy maybe the first one or two drinks. But after that, I was just drinking because I didn't want to not I didn't want to feel what I was feeling and that's all it was. Uh, and a lot of people end up in that boat where they don't drink because they enjoy it or they don't use a drug because they enjoy it. They use it because they feel so terrible when they don't use it. So they're trying to avoid even the effects of not using more than trying to get the effect of using, if that makes sense. Um, and that's kind of where I was and I wasn't myself anymore. Um, so it's, it's pretty amazing the turnaround that can happen. But it takes a real wake-up call for a lot of us to, to recognize that, you know, I'm just throwing my entire life away. And with that, my family, you know, that there's this idea, that, you know, maybe of a genetic component of addiction. And I think there's probably something to that. But I say that addiction is a family disease because everybody in your household is suffering from it. So I may be the primary sufferer of my alcohol use, but my wife's got a pick up the slack. My wife's got to pick up my son. My son has to deal with a father who's blacked out on the couch 
and not bonding with him because my alcohol was more important than my time with my son. Um, so the whole family suffers from that. Um, so everybody pays a price for one person's addiction, but the real positive side is people recover and people recover all the time. And we're getting better about recognizing that there's more than one way to do that. Um, and because of that, I think people are, are more empowered and able to find more avenues to get help now, but we still have a long way to go in our culture. And particularly when it comes to alcohol use and, and how we're going to, you know, more effectively deal with that going forward. But we, we are seeing some strides being made in that regard, which makes me happy. I just want to see a much more open and honest conversation about what we're doing to ourselves with uh, our substance use on this job. Now, how many years into your firefighting career did you find yourself at this in a very extreme element of addiction? I was about 11 years in the career side. I had 10 years as a volunteer before that. So overall, like 21 years, but as far as a, a career firefighter, I was 11 years in. Because I see this over and over again, about the 10-year mark, and I heard uh, Navy SEAL talking about this as well You know, in, in his field. When we're new, and this might be slightly different for you because you said you were a volunteer as well, but for a lot of us that weren't, you know, that we enter the profession, about the 10-year mark was when I started noticing that you'd get a, a smaller percentage from all, every call. Like you're always learning from calls, you know, and everyone brings one a little bit differently, whether it's a very basal uh, medical call or a very extreme fire call. But, you know, what would absolutely get you, <laughs> you know, super excited as a rookie, 10 years in, you're like, well, that was a bullshit fire. That was just room and contents. You know, it's not, it's not a real fire anymore. And it's not a chest beat and bravado thing. It's, you know, your adrenal glands become more and more conditioned. You're calm. It's less of a threat. And so what we talked about earlier, the excitement, the adrenaline that used to fill, fill your mind and distract you, it's only those epic calls that do that anymore. And because we run so much BLS, um, you know, in the EMS side and then in a lot of the fires now, which is a great thing. People are already out of the house. Sprinklers have kicked in, all these things. We don't get the backdraft type fires very often if we're all honest with ourselves. And it seems like around the 10 mark is where a lot of people then find that starts to creep in. And so then if what we talked about earlier you've been using this profession to fill a void like one of my good friends Chad did and he he fought chronic chronic alcoholism extreme alcoholism to the point where he was going to take his own life if his last uh rehab experience didn't work um and thank god it did he's been sober over 2 years now um i think 2 or maybe 3 um but anyway that was what happened all this childhood trauma very significant childhood trauma in his case you know sexual abuse um after about 10 years is when he started falling apart. So it's interesting when you have these conversations, there seems to be an element of that. If you're in a busy department, you're running a lot of calls, there's a certain point in your career, it might be 10, it might be a little bit sooner, it might be after, where it's just not as exciting anymore, a lot of them, which is a good thing. You're getting more experience, you're getting more relaxed, you're being the, the old bull, as it were. But mm -hmm. if you've been using that to distract you from some things that are stirring in your mind that you've pushed down, sadly, that's also when we start seeing those manifest again. Yeah, and that that's similar to, I mean, obviously, to what I went through. And I think that that, that mirrors what, what I've been seeing 
among the, the first responder agencies that I work with as well is that, and, and for some of it, I think maybe even a little sooner, but I wonder how many of those people even come from a military background. We obviously hire a fair amount of, of veterans on this job. So are they, have they already gotten a big chunk of their adrenaline fix through the military and then they come into the fire service and it shortens that window even more. But I would say that that's, that's kind of what we see as well is that 10 year mark. I hadn't really ever thought about it, but, but it does play out pretty consistently. Now I heard you touch on the steps, the, the AA and NA seem to be such an incredible um, kind of framework, you know, an organization to, to help people, guide people through addiction, whether you're an addict or not, it sounds like they're just amazing, you know, um, philosophies for, for living a better life. But what were the things? I mean, you, you got caught, you were put in front of a culturally competent, um, social worker, which is again, as we discussed, is, is incredible. Walk me through the next year. Like, what were the things that pulled you from such a deep addiction back to having post traumatic growth and then helping people? It, was I think one having the outlet to to discuss things that I had never felt I could discuss, like like about my uncle and the call that you, you mentioned earlier, where uh, one of my first calls as a as a volunteer firefighter was on a family who had been killed in a car accident and some other circumstances with the mother from that call who survived and um, hearing her screams, like those were not things that that I ever could discuss or felt comfortable discussing. And I was finally able to get that stuff out there. The, the social worker didn't even push. He didn't say for me to clear you to go back to work, you have to do AA. He just said, this is what AA is. Would you be interested in trying that? And that alone is a really important aspect when we look at addiction recovery is people with addiction issues are so out of control that empowering them to say, look, this is your recovery. You're, you're the one who's going to have to do the work here. What does that look like for you? Or can I offer a suggestion for you to do? Makes all the difference to put me back in charge. And that's what it did was, you know, he just recommended, this is what it is. Would you be willing to explore that? And I was like, yeah, you know, I, I don't know what else to do. So that sounds good. I've, I've heard of AA, so I'll give it a shot. And I can remember going to my first meeting and sitting out in the parking lot and throwing up before I went in. It's like, I don't know if I can do this. What's, what's going to happen when I get through these doors, right? It's anonymous. I really don't know what's going to happen. And I went in and people started telling their stories in the meeting. And I was like, just person after person from all different walks of life. But their story was my story. And, you know, Johan Hari, if you're familiar with, with Johan, has a book called Chasing the Scream that's about the war on drugs and about rat park and the studies that were done with cocaine use among rats and, and what affected change in, in rats that made them not drink cocaine water until they died. And it was connection. Like that was the key. That was what really unlocked the door that is addiction what we think it is. And for me, being able to walk into a room of people who didn't judge me for the things I had done. And they, in fact, embraced me. That was the whole point that they were there and that I was there. I was as valuable to them in my recovery as they were to me in mine. And that immediate fellowship to be accepted and, and mentored and not judged was huge. That made me want to go back. And I was, I was very diligent about hitting 90 meetings in 90 days. 
at that time, they didn't have, there wasn't a real strong online presence. Uh, this is well before COVID and, and Zoom and all that. So meetings were really just in person. So when I went back on shift, there were days when I couldn't go to meetings, um, but I would hit them. I found a home group and, and that's a key part of recovery too. If somebody's new to recovery is explore different meetings. There's all different meeting types. Then there's all different pathways to recovery as well. AA is not the only, only pony in the show, but for me, it worked. Um, and I knew at, at some point it, it like dawned on me that, you know, I'm not the only cat on the job who has a drinking problem. And I wanted to start helping other firefighters and, it's kind of an industry standard is you need a year of sobriety before you really consider getting involved with helping other people, which makes good sense. There are, I'm sure, people who could do it sooner than that and probably a lot of people who should wait longer. But a year seems to be kind of a sweet spot. And so once I, I got my year in, I knew that just my personality, obviously being, I've always worked in a service field, right? I try and help other people. So it was somewhat natural that even in, in this, in my recovery, I would want to help other people too. And, and one of the the keys involved with AA is the idea of service, um, gratitude, unity, and service are the three key points. So I thought, how can I serve other people? So I went back to my department and found out that we had a CISM program, which I never knew about. I really didn't even know about our EAP before all of this. So those are two issues that we needed to address in my mind was, would I have gotten help sooner? Maybe, I don't know. But it wouldn't have hurt if I knew that these programs existed where there are people who are willing to help me confidentially to give me some assistance. I didn't even know they existed. So I got involved with um, our CISM program and went to CISM training. Um, and then a few years after that, we transitioned into uh, peer support. Um, our clinical director for our team was one of the people who worked with the IFF to develop their peer support curriculum. Uh, and I got involved with that through the IFF and, you know, just really started building our program. What can we start doing differently? And, and I had a lot of support from, from um, Ernie Malone, our fire chief, amazing human being. Um, he actually, when I got suspended, was the assistant chief. And even like his attitude when, when I was getting suspended was, you know, this is a real opportunity for you to get better. If you need help, this is a great opportunity for you to do that. Uh, and he's carried that attitude forward as our fire chief that he's very supportive and looks at recovery as a something that any of us can do if we want to do it, just like any other disease process that we can heal. We can heal from addiction and, and whatever else is troubling us. So that top-down support has been massive for us. Um, dedicating a full-time behavioral health unit within our fire department with a battalion chief and a captain full-time in that unit and peers on every shift you know, are all things that we've been able to develop as a result of that. Um, but it's all about serving other people and, and recognizing that if you have these problems, you can get better. People do it every day. And most people do quit at some point, whether it's, it's heroin, cocaine, alcohol, you know, benzos, whatever it may be, most people naturally quit. But the sooner that we can do that, the better, uh, the less wreckage we leave behind. Uh, and that's kind of been my driving force is how do we make sure that we get you help safely and privately on your terms. And that's kind of been my guiding principle ever since I got involved in this probably, uh, let's see, I've been sober 10 years. So nine years ago, as I embarked on this is, I certainly have skeletons in my closet and my use and the way that I live my life. I'm not going to judge you for yours. So let's sit down and figure out how we can get you the help you need. 
Uh, and that's just, that's driven everything that I've done since then. Well, first you mentioned Johan Hari. I had him on the show. I'm actually trying to get him back on again, but he was on episode 317. And if anyone wants to hear an incredible perspective of, you know, drug prohibition and areas around the world that have found resolutions to those issues, the addiction crisis, I highly recommend listening to that and reading his book, Chasing the Scream. And you touched on something as well, I think is very important just to kind of circle around to, um, in Portugal, where my family, actually a couple of my family members moved to, and, and I got to sit down with the gentleman who spearheaded deport, uh, Portugal's decriminalization of addiction, not selling, not smuggling, addiction, is exactly what you just said. When they are found with a personal use of whatever you know substance, you, you, you can't go to the public, you can't go to the store and buy crack you know what i mean there's a big misconception of legalization that you're just going to go into you know your local gas station and buy some meth no that's not how it works but if you uh detain with it you get an interview and it's it's basically an informative interview and you are told about the addiction counseling that you can get the uh, mental health counseling the job creation and it's just what you said you are now empowering the addict to make their own choices so they're not forcing people into step programs. They're not forcing them into a 30-day hold in some addiction clinic. And they found incredible success because you remove all the elements that you said, the fear of being arrested. You remove the fact that you get a felony because you had the audacity to have childhood trauma or you know whatever happened to you and now you become an addict. So now you're empowering these men and women with all the tools to get themselves back onto sobriety and being functional members of society again. And I think that you hit the nail on the head. What's working is is giving them the choice, empowering them to take the reins on their own, um, you know, recovery journey. Yeah. And it's interesting too. I I worked for a while uh, on my days off as a recovery coach for one of the the health networks here. And it was a a virtual uh, position where, Someone would come into an emergency department, um, having been, you know, Narcan from, say, you know, a heroin overdose. And when they were lucid and, and could answer questions, uh, they would contact us at our virtual care hub. They would wheel a computer into the room next to the person. The nurse would shut the door. And as a recovery coach, I would have a conversation with that person that, you know, it, this is what we were told happened. I'm in recovery myself. So we won right out of the gate, show that it's possible to get better. And they also see that this, this guy is not judging me for me being here in this position. And we just have that conversation. Are you interested in, in seeking recovery? If so, what does, when you say you would like to recover, you would like to get sober, what's that mean to you? Like, that's the key question that, that we've failed to ask for a long time is what does sobriety look like to you? And if it's somebody on that gurney and they say, well, I don't want to quit, but I would like to get clean needles or I would like to be able to test, or maybe I could get a supply of Narcan to carry with me. I'll take every single one of those options for somebody because that is one step closer to them not dying. Keeping that person alive long enough to recover is the key. And and we are starting to see that shift, not so much in the first responder world, um, but certainly in the civilian world and the emergency departments is using recovery coaches in that capacity as a a huge benefit because exa- just what you described that I'm empowering you, you can take it or leave it. I'm going to ask if I can follow up with you. Um, but what does it look like to you? Because uh, again, you got to do the work, not me. So let's figure out how you want to do it. And then 
Let's talk about your strengths, what's working for you in your life, and let's capitalize on that. And let's talk about what's going to get in the way. And let's figure out how we, we get those barriers out of the way. Um, just that conversation goes a huge, huge way to getting people better. Absolutely. One thing I've seen as well is when people have been through their own journey and they found themselves in a dark place and they've, they've been able to pull themselves out, then members of their department come out the woodwork and say, I'm actually hurting too. When you got back on the line, when you kind of had this incredible journey and you were, you were able to, to, you know, get back on the rig, did you start witnessing other people uh, confiding in you about struggling themselves as well? It took a while. I think, you know, the, the first impression that I got from a lot of people was almost a, hey, don't worry about it. It could have been a lot of us sort of attitude, which is scary in itself. And, and, and also true that it probably could be a lot of firefighters who found themselves in that position. But over time, particularly as we've built our program, you know, there, there are huge trust issues among us. Like, who can I, who can I confide in? Uh, the old, you know, telephone, telegraph, telefirefighter. You have to be very selective sometimes in who you disclose personal details to. So it took a while, but over time, definitely more and more people would talk to me about what was going on in their life. Um, and I, particularly whenever they knew that we had top-down support for, for what we were doing, where people could get the help and not be penalized for it um, and knew that they could talk to us confidentially and nobody else in the administration was checking in to see what we were doing. Once we laid that groundwork, and it, it did take years to get there, but we went from, I think the first year that we had a full-time unit we had maybe around a thousand contacts for the year. That includes follow-ups and initial contacts. And last year, we had, I think, over three thousand. Um, so it's definitely, you know, it's grown by leaps and bounds because people know we're legitimate and that that the department wants people to get better. Um, and now it's a regular conversation that we're having. Well, another kind of parallel is you. I heard you talking to um, to Jim about this too. The confidentiality clause that you had to protect, you know, peer, um, you know, peers basically that you've spoken to about your addiction, for example, then being able to relay it to you know administrators or whoever is trying to withdraw that information. You've now created a an environment where people feel comfortable reaching out, and I think whether in the fire service or whether nationally. It's the same model as if we demonize addiction, we're going to keep our addicts in the dark. If we create an environment, whether it's mental health, as far as a depression, anxiety, suicide element or the addiction element, which, you know, ultimately are completely interconnected anyway, then, you know, if, if we create an environment where people feel safe to, to seek help, then you're going to get so many people that do. And I think what you're doing in Indianapolis now in the fire service is a great example, again, of what we should be doing nationally within our profession and outside of it. Yeah, and that the general order that we had put in place to guarantee confidentiality basically said nobody from the administration is allowed to talk to peer support about what they're doing in peer support. Even if they're actively investigating something, they need to get their evidence or, or their information from people other than peer support. And that worked really, really well for us. And I, I actually 
last year contacted my state senator because we had a, a law in place statewide in Indiana that any, anything that a CISM member talked to somebody about was confidential, but it didn't include peer support. And, and the statute was very specific about having a CISM certification. So it was like this big gaping hole now because there's been a shift, at least in a lot of states and in, in public safety from CISM to peer support in a lot of sectors. And, and I'm fortunate my actual state senator, Mike Kreider, is a retired law enforcement officer and, and a champion of mental health first responder as well as civilian. And I got with him and said, you know, this is a, a big issue that I would like to shore up statewide if we could get confidentiality for first responder peer support teams. Um, and he was on board with that. And we ended up uh, last year, we got that through the Indiana General Assembly without a single nay vote. It made it through Senate committee, House committee, both houses, and, and nobody voted against it. Um, because it just made so much common sense. And, and we're also fortunate on the House side. Um, Randy Fry was a retired Indianapolis firefighter, and he carried the bill uh, on the House side. But so now we have that protection in place for the whole the whole state for peer support programs. So it's other states have done that, too. And hopefully more states are able to do it um, because pr guaranteeing that protection is vital. I, I don't think you can have any type of real program without it. Absolutely. No, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's imperative because I've seen that the fear, especially in law enforcement, the fear of losing your badge and your gun just because you're proactively asking for help. I mean, that, that's such a dissuader for so many of that profession to, to ask for help. So by yeah. removing those and creating an environment the same way as, you know, if I freaking fell off a rig and broke my leg, I'm not going to like cover it up in case someone knows I got a broken leg. I mean, I know that there's going to be no judgment going to workman's comp. I may not end up with the best physician, but, <laughs> but at least there's a road to, to trying to get back to work. It should be exactly the same with the, the mental health side. Absolutely. All right. Well, then one area that I want to make sure that we do discuss, and again, this is another one of those poor dead horses that I'm beating with a stick. Um, when it comes to mental health, you know, I think the conversations are being had. There are some areas now that have got great peer support programs like yours, like the Florida Collaborative here. Um, but I think a lot of the, the population are still kind of buying into that. Oh, it's what you saw that gave you PTSD. And I think it's the same with the cancer side. It's what you were exposed to. Now, the, the, the elephant in the room in both these conversations that I've talked about a lot and also heart disease and obesity and all these other areas is sleep deprivation in our profession. Now, I've had been so fortunate to have so many people from the sleep medicine world, whether it's the Air Force, Navy, Army, sporting world. I mean, so many great minds and they all align with chronic and acute sleep deprivation is horrendous for human beings. And the point I make so many times is if I go to the store now, the people, the great men and women in, in Publix here in Florida that help me, you know, 40 hour work week is probably the ceiling before they start getting into overtime and that kind of thing. And their lives do not depend on them. They're, they're amazing, but there's not, you know, they're not life saving. Our profession, we have on average 56 hour work week. The federal men and women are doing 72. We've got people with a Kelly, maybe get a 48. And so the men and women that we have that will go from a dead sleep to jumping on a rig, you know, next thing I've had this personally, like four or five minutes later, you're on a roof with a saw in your hand. You know, maybe someone's doing a search and they pull them out. Now they're working a PD code and we're working these men and women, you know, 
two full work days longer per week than the bankers and the accountants and all the, you know, the regular nine to five people. And so the sleep deprivation element and its contrib- contribution to mental health, to cancer is something I hardly hear any discussion at all. And when I do hear a discussion, it's like, well, when they're off shift, they just need to get better sleep. So mm-hmm. what, what has been your perspective of that entire kind of topic? Yeah, and I mean, this is something that even you and I discussed. If you remember, probably five years ago, I hit you up for some information on this as I started to see, you know, what what's this really doing to us? And I, I don't think they're, I mean, we already know that if you don't get, you know, regularly get seven consecutive hours of sleep that, you know, things like heart disease and diabetes, uh, anxiety, depression become worse. Like that's indisputable at this point. And let's look at, you know, the top two killers for firefighters year in and year out are cardiovascular disease and cancer. And we've done a really good job talking about the, the importance of nutrition and exercise. But is that really moving the needle? And how much has that moved the needle in overall firefighter health? We still know, you know, from studies that uh, one study in particular that Sarah Jenke did about firefighters being overweight. I think 80% of firefighters were overweight in a study that she looked at of almost 500 firefighters. Um, why is that? Because we've done a good job with, with really harping on working out and eating right. And how much of that is due to sleep deprivation and cortisol? Um, I think it's huge. You know, the impact that sleep deprivation has on our immune system and stress in general frankly, has on our immune system and our cortisol levels and the impact that that has on T-cells and providing that environment within our bodies that's going to allow cancer to grow and become malignant, I think there's just no doubt that they're they're way, way, way interconnected. And it's it's maybe really hard to address because somebody has to be up at night to handle the emergencies. Like there's there's no way to avoid that. If we're going to have full-time fire departments or volunteer fire departments, Two in the morning, somebody has to respond, which screws up our circadian rhythm as the mammals we are. We're designed to be asleep at night. But the idea that, well, we just need to get better sleep when we get off shift doesn't work because we know, hey, how long does it take that steady buildup of cortisol that should have been going down throughout the day, but with us stays high? How long does it take for that to work out of our system? Um, and, you know, I've heard different numbers. One is about 48 hours. So most career firefighters, about the time their endocrine system and, and that response has kind of leveled out, we're right back in it again. Um, and how many of us wake up in the middle of the night for no reason and our minds either racing from this thing to that thing, like we're a computer with 50 windows open? You know, is that because we have this steady blast of adrenaline? Or those of us who wake up in the middle of the night and we're not necessarily worried about anything, but we just wake up at two in the morning and we're wide awake. And, you know, is that cortisol playing, playing a role in that? Because we know long-term the effects of that are devastating physically and mentally. Um, but it's the third rail, you know, it's one of the three pillars of health, but nobody wants to talk about it because I don't think anybody's real sure how to, how to address it, but it's something we got to deal with because of, of all the factors, I think that's probably, if we could take care of the sleep issue, so many other of our problems I would predict would go away on their own, just if we got better sleep. Yeah, I agree completely. And it's, it's funny because you look at that knee jerk to a shift discussion immediately, be like, well, I don't want to do 12s. 
I want to do, I don't want to do eights. And it's like, well, I have to say hand on heart working in, you know, four different fire departments on East, East coast and West coast that for the fire service specifically in the way that we have stations and there are dorms that the 24 hour shift actually is the best way of us doing our job because, you know, we, we have a home. So, you know, you will get some sort of, version of sleep on those 24 hours that you're on between calls and i've always worked in very busy firehouses so you know there's never i never had a goose egg in 14 years never ever had a a goose egg so um that being said it's the rest and recovery between shift and i've posed this question to all these these sleep people what you know if we just put an extra day in between, so 2472, which the Northeast has, which Boca Raton, Florida has, which, you know, Brian, Ohio, which is Paul Coombs, um, department has. So these aren't unicorns fighting rainbows. These are real departments, some of which, you know, people admire, like FDNY. Would that, you know, how much of an impact would they have? And they were, they, they all said it would be huge. And that brings it down to a 42 hour work week. You still keep your 24s. You can start in the, the AM or the PM or whatever you want to do, but, we are not sitting around playing cards, petting the Dalmatian and listening to the horses shit in the stables anymore. <laughs> this is, this is, you know, 2022 where most of our men and women are getting run into the ground, especially if you have an EMS component to your, your department. So one thing I want to pose to you because you, you know, you work with the cancer side, you work with the fitness side, you work with the mental health side. Have you been exposed to the data? Because I get asked this all the time. James, can you send me studies that show that a 42-hour work week is healthier than a 56? And I'm like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Did you just ask me that? Like, if we gave them two days off more, you know, or a 24 between, that that would be healthier? You want to see a a lab study for that? But (laughs) but that aside, my exasperation aside, I know there is data on how much it costs our administrations to do it the way we do it now the workman's comp claims the the injuries the the lawsuits from us making mistakes the you know the line of duty deaths have you seen any data on on how much um we would potentially save because sadly the financial element is what sways people and it shouldn't be it should be the human element but my whole thing, and again, I've heard this from many, many experts, if we were proactive, which is a the theme of this whole conversation today, we would actually save our departments a lot of money by hiring a D-shift because all of these back-end costs would go down dramatically. And I have not seen the data on that. I'm, I'm very much like you. Like To me, would more time off be beneficial? Like I, I don't need to see a study to know that that would be a good thing to do. Um, but I haven't seen the hard data. One th- I mean, something though that I, I do talk about, and it, it's maybe a little bit off point, but it does relate to sleep is I point out if nothing else, you know, within your, I, I've worked at stations and departments and, and, and teaching scene departments who like will leave the radio open all day long so that they can hear what's going on all over town. Like do your people a favor and turn the radio off. Because every time they hear the tones drop, even if it's not for them, they're going to get a response from that. If your people want to take a nap, let them take a nap. Like there are some simple things that I think we can be doing to improve this in the meantime, before we get it all figured out. Those are two big things. Um, But I haven't seen the data, but I know, I mean, just intuitively that a lot of the issues that we're facing can be directly tied to sleep deprivation. And we've seen the benefit 
you know, it's kind of the same thing in, in mental health. Like we can either pay for somebody to go away to get, you know, maybe a 30 day treatment program where they're off for 10 shift days all at once. And we get them, hopefully get them better, or they can call in three, four times a year for 20, 25 years and rack up 60 or 70 sick days as a result versus just getting 10. Like we know that that works better to get people to help. So I haven't seen the data, but man, it just makes so much sense that, that doing, giving the, the, the extra time off just, you know, it just seems like a no brainer. Yeah. And I think it's just, it's a, it's a difficult conversation, but it's a necessary one. And I just had this, had a moment last week where I've got some friends that, you know, I started off as, as lower ranking firefighters and now are in chief positions. And when you pose this question, they, it's like an armadillo that you just scared. They, they just shell up completely. Mm-hmm. And it, it occurred to me, I've seen so many people posting, oh, extreme ownership. I read, you know, um, all these great leadership books. This guy was an admiral of the Navy. And, but I don't see any of that applied to the most basal thing, which is the work week. And the same in the union. I mean, I was a union, um, you know, Jews paying member and I love the philosophy of unions, but the basal thing for, you know, is, is health and safety and obviously the work week, working conditions. And so I, you know, I, this has been an issue when I came on in Anaheim and, and Hialeah, you know, the, excuse me, Hialeah had a Kelly day, Anaheim didn't, but I came on in 2004, like, you know, actually hired as a firefighter. So we're talking almost 20 years and, you know, we've got busier and busier and busier and busier and, you know, stations get browned out and, and this still hasn't, I haven't even seen it discussed yet. There are departments that are doing it. So I don't, I don't understand why collectively we can't come together and say, Hey, for, for three years, let's not talk about pay increases or anything like that. I get that none of us are particularly well paid. You know, maybe you could argue California. I think Anaheim, I was actually paid what a firefighter should have been paid. But let's focus on this one issue. Let's come together nationally and say this is going to be an industry standard. And yes, the argument is, okay, this this station is out here and they, they only run. Okay, great. I know security guards that, that play, you know, are on Facebook there 24 hour shift or 12 hour shift. They don't mm-hmm. have to be fighting burglars every single day. It's okay. But we, you know, whether you're kind of half sleeping and you're in a, a quiet station or if like most of us in the urban and suburban set and you're running 24 hours straight, as you said, it's killing us through the mental health side. So you've got the suicide, you've got the addiction, you've got the obesity, you've got the heart disease, you've got the autoimmune disease, you've got the cancers. Firefighters don't buy it, die of one thing. We die of everything. And the mm-hmm. underlying element is our immunity. And even COVID, how many responses did we lose going back to our beginning um, conversation? And that's what worried me about this. This is why if there was a safe, trusted vaccination, shouldn't be mandated, but it should have been educated and encouraged because I think we were a very vulnerable population. But that's yeah. a, a huge monologue and I apologize. But my thing is, when, like, how many people, how many, you know, what's the body count that we have to get to before we finally, you know, put our big boy pants on as a profession and demand the same work week that most of the people in, in our country work on a daily basis? And, and, you know, it's, you kind of touched on it too. There's, there's an administrative side to this and there's a firefighters getting out of our own way side of this where I want my Kelly week. So I've got five days off so I can work my second job or pick up overtime, you know, as much as I possibly can. Like we have to have that recognition on our part 
of how important this is um, because a big part of this is us not being able to get out of our own way as firefighters because we we want those things um, and we don't think down the road how it's going to impact us. Um, so yeah, it's there's a lot to cover there, but we know something's got to give because the way we've been doing it is is undoubtedly killing us. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's the, the other side. This is always a two-sided conversation. I mean, as in, you know, two sides of the coin and there's ownership for us when we're on days off. And I think firstly, with the 2472, you'd have three days off every single, you know, shift rotation. So that's plenty of time to work other jobs, mm-hmm. but also it's choosing the jobs. And, you know, I know people that will, you know, do uh go work on an ambulance or do a night shift in an ER. That's if you educate right from the new hire onwards, the impact of sleep deprivation, hopefully our responders will go, you know what, I'm going to go hang drywall, I'm going to landscape, I'm going to do whatever, but it's going to be something where I work in the day and sleep in my own bed at night. And I understand sleep hygiene and I'll shut off my devices and cool my home and all these things so that I get good sleep when I'm not at the station. So it's the ownership element is absolutely a part too. And we've got to stop focusing on a 50 cent pay raise instead of you know, something that not only will pay forward in all the years you collect your retirement, but also will, you know, every single day that you're off shift, you're feeling better. You know, you're, you're yeah. to your family as well. And, and doing other things that we know, things like meditating and yoga and, and other practices that we can do that make sleep better and that, you know, can help us rather than having that knee jerk emotional response where we can actually, you know, not blast our system into overdrive whenever things happen. Um, so not just to shift work, but all the other things that we can be doing to improve our sleep and improve our decision-making and, and, but yeah, it, it's man, what a conversation. Like that's such a, a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, we have to start and that's a problem. I, I know I, I'm waiting for these, you know, the, the real leaders in the fire service to all unify and start having this conversation. Because again, if you want to stop all these epidemics that are killing people, and I started this podcast after two years and six funerals. So that was enough. That was the body count that was enough for me to start this. Mm-hmm. Now I hope that, you know, we can all band together and, and say enough is enough with this. Just ask a simple question. Airline pilots and people that, you know, crew ships and um, truck drivers, and but they have a standard work week and they have to have X amount of sleep. And we have completely abandoned that whole philosophy. So all I'm saying as a profession is we need to go to a work week that allow us to thrive rather than kill us. It's that simple. Yeah, 100%. Well, shifting, (laughs) so I can transition (laughs) some closing questions. You touched on yoga. So talk to me about that side, you know, the the kind of physical component, but also the mental component and what took you down that path. Yeah, as, as part of my recovery, uh, you know, one of the steps mentions that, you know, through through prayer and meditation, blah, 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 it goes on from there. But like I knew what prayer was, but I never really knew what meditation was. Um, and so as part of my recovery, I learned about meditation and I started meditating. And naturally, when you start working around meditation, people who meditate, yoga comes into the the equation at some point. So I started to uh, explore yoga, um, started practicing a little bit here and there, and, and my practice got more and more serious. Um, 
And one of the local yoga studios here in Indianapolis um, worked with uh, our health and safety division to, they agreed to put two of us through yoga teacher training. So myself and, and our peer fitness coordinator uh, took a 200 hour yoga teacher training. Um, I went on after that and got another 300 hour training to get my, my 500 hour registration. But we just started started out offering yoga to our recruits. So in recruit school, um, we'd, we'd have one day a week where we would just do an hour of yoga. And and for me, like I kind of had this realization one day that because it's easy to get discouraged when you think about I'm going to go do yoga, and then you get on Instagram and watch people quote doing yoga end quote, and you look at what they're you know standing doing headstands and whatever else. And like, I had this realization that, you know what, I don't really look like or move like any of the people I see on social media doing yoga practices, but neither do my students. Like <laughs> I look like my students, my students look like me. We're all kind of in the same boat. And that's how we started. Like with our recruits, we work with injured firefighters. We do modified yoga classes. I go to visit fire stations. If they want me to come out, we do yoga in the firehouse. I bring the mats and the blocks and straps and all that. But we really drive home the point that like a lot of things that have been westernized, yoga is not really the way it's sold in America. Like when you, when you get back to the roots, at least as much as I can understand them from my perspective, Yoga is really about breathing and about becoming focused and, and the movements help set you up to meditate. Uh, it's not about doing handstands. It's not about touching your toes with straight legs. Um, and that's what I tell people, like, however, we need to modify your practice so you can do it and feel comfortable. That's what we're going to do. Um, and it's been huge. Like we weren't sure, you know, do we need to change the name of it? Do we need to call it tactical something? Because that, you know, putting the word tactical before things in the fire service, you know, makes them more marketable, but we just decided, no, we're going to, we're going to call it yoga. We're going to call it what it is. And I think we've, we've definitely seen among our recruits, you know, some generational differences. They're very open and actually very eager. And a lot of those, those folks are coming into recruit school with already having an active yoga practice, active meditation practice. So it's a very easy sell with them, but we're seeing more and more people reaching out saying, Hey, can you come to the firehouse and and just kind of give us an intro class. It's like, absolutely. Um, and every class we start off just with doing breath work. Let's focus for a little bit, five minutes just on our breathing. And then for 30 minutes or so, we're going to move. And it's going to be gentle movement because I'm not trying to pretend like we're all going to be doing the splits. We're not. That's not our population. But let's move for a little bit and really focus on what we're doing and feel our body. And then at the end of our, our practice, we meditate five to 10 minute meditation, just to show people that even meditation probably isn't what you thought it is. You don't have to sit, you know, in the lotus position with a sitar in the background and incense burning. Like you can just sit quietly and catch your thoughts. It doesn't, you're never going to quiet your mind. So we have that conversation about what meditation is and it's been really well received. Um, and I can tell, like you, you'll hear people talk about, it. I can tell when I haven't done yoga and that's true. Like if my meditation practice gets gets disrupted, if my yoga practice gets disrupted, I can tell um, because it, it really does make a difference as far as that little space between when something happens, reacting versus responding. Um, and things like meditation and yoga teach you how to respond 
rather than react. You really capitalize on that split second between what happens and what you're going to do about it. Um, and it makes you sharper. Like it's almost counterintuitive because I think people are afraid if I engage in these, you know, crunchy granola activities, am I going to lose my edge? Am I going to, you know, be a slower decision maker? Am I going to contemplate things for too long? And it's actually, it's just the opposite. Um, it makes you much sharper. It makes you a better decision maker. Uh, it allows you to have much better situational awareness to see the big picture of on a scene of what's going on and how are the different ways I can solve that problem. You do much better with that when you have a positive mindset that things like meditation and yoga can give you versus that tunnel vision, negative mindset that, that comes with not having situational awareness. So there's a lot of really good job benefits of those things, but also just day-to-day -day life and stress levels. Um, I sleep better now than I've ever slept. And a big part of that is because I listen to my body. When my body says it's tired, I go to bed. I used to push it. I need to stay up a little bit longer, but I don't. Um, and having that calmer mindset that when it's time to go to bed, it's time to go to bed. That's what I do. I get up way early in the morning. I'm usually up by between four and four 30 and I wake up naturally because I go to bed much earlier now. Um, but I feel great as a result. So it really all ties in together, but I would encourage departments like don't shy away from things like meditation and yoga because you think they're too new age, like they're thousands of years old. They're indisputably beneficial to the human body and the human mind. Uh, and if nothing else, generationally, we have a lot more people coming into our agencies who are open and accepting of these concepts and started in recruit school. Like if, even if you have to bring in a yoga teacher once a week during recruit school, if you're in a community of any size, I would almost guarantee you could find a yoga teacher who would donate that hour to come in and do that training with your recruits. That's where we shift the paradigm. That's what we've done with everything from cancer prevention to RIT teams to air packs. We have to draw the line in the sand and recruit school is a great place to do that. So let's start instilling this type of, of lifestyle early on because we know it works. Um, and people are just, once they get exposed to it and see what it is and what it is not, they stick with it. It's pretty amazing. And we've had, you know, a fairly large agency of 1300 people and it's been really, really well received here. So I encourage people to give it a shot. Yeah. Well, I've found, you know, amazing success with yoga and uh, meditation. Um, I actually use headspace. So that's usually my morning routine It's just, you know, 15 minutes on, on my porch. And I worked up to that amount, but I think one of the, the kind of lenses that I found works well with our profession. So especially if it's kind of a naysayer element is think about, your favorite athlete each one of them i had a, a guy i've talked about him a lot logan gelbrick but uh, he talked about this in baseball he talked about this one real flow state moment that he had and he said you, you need three things to get into flow state you need repetition so obviously if you've got a department that you know takes training seriously then you will have the reps whether it's pulling hose or it's throwing ladders whether it's making cuts on the roof you need stress well, clearly, most of the things that we do, if they're not, you know, BLS are, are going to have an element of stress. And then you need a clear mind. So you cannot be a high performer on the fire ground with a maelstrom in your mind. So framing it that way, and like you said, having that kind of wide perspective as a as an IC or, you know, be able to see target hazards when you are climbing the aerial or whatever it is, um, meditation 
makes you a better athlete. And you talked about tactical, tactical athlete. So by framing it that way, I found that takes some of the woo-woo out. Of course, the down regulation. I used to use Headspace after I came back from a call, like, you know, 3 a.m., just put it in, listen to it for five minutes, and I'd be asleep again. But also to have that calmness so that you can get to as close as the flow state as a firefighter, as a medic, as a police officer, as an incredible tool that any athlete that you admire that's at their pinnacle probably already uses. Yeah. And if we look at martial arts, even, you know, I, I think that I've, I've read that you train jujitsu or used to, I, I trained jujitsu for a number of years. And when you roll and you're in that moment, like you're not even thinking like your body, your body is, is moving. And it's, it's all the things that you described. And at the gyms where I, I trained, we would, you know, have our drilling, then we would roll. Um, and then we would, you know, get in Cezanne on our knees and we would, at the end of our, our practice, we would, we would meditate to kind of round things out. Um, but it's all those zone and, and getting in your flow, all that stuff that you just described, like, as you were talking about, I was like, that's jujitsu. That's what happens when you're rolling with somebody and you're not even thinking about it. In fact, if you think about it, it's too late. Like you can't think about it and it's those repetitions. It's the stress, like all that stuff that you just described. That's pretty remarkable. Absolutely. I was just doing it this morning and I, the only thing I'm thinking of is trying not to get murdered usually, so. <laughs> <laughs> which happens a lot. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, it's been such an amazing conversation and I, I apologize if I kind of got on my soapbox a little bit more than usual, but I knew that, you know, you, with your background and some of the things I've heard you talk about that we are kindred spirits and a lot of the, the things that we've seen, you know, the, the people that we've lost and, and the preventative elements. So I really appreciate your, your perspectives. I'd love to throw a few closing questions at you before I let you go, if you've got time. Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful. Well, the first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. There's two books that I, I like that just popped in my head immediately. Um, one is Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement um, by uh, Kevin Gilmartin. Uh, phenomenal book. Uh, should be read. I think it should be required reading in every recruit school for fire, EMS, police, and everybody's family members should read it too. Pretty quick read, 120 some pages perhaps, um, but it gets into some of the biology of why we do what we do with the so-called magic chair and flipping through channels and, and the way that our body has to come down from our shifts and just a great book. So that's one that I would recommend. Um, and another that I would recommend is a book called No Mud, No Lotus um, by Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, is a Buddhist monk. He just recently died um, just a few months ago. Um, but it, that book talks about the necessity of suffering to have things that aren't suffering. Like it's the, the duality, the good and the bad. Like they, they really work together. You can't have a lotus, a beautiful lotus flower sitting on top of the water unless you have a lot of stinky, lousy mud for the roots of that lotus flower to grow into. And it's the same with us. How do we take our life's suffering and recognize the beauty that can come from that? Because we can't have that beauty without the suffering. They go hand in hand. Um, so it's, it's kind of a, a very gentle um, approach to that, that topic. Um, but I really love that book. So those would be two books I would recommend. Beautiful. I've never heard of No Mud, No Lotus before, but I know who you're talking about. So he's a, is he a Tibetan monk or is he Vietnamese? 
Uh, he was Vietnamese. Okay, that's what uh, I thought. In yeah. uh, Zen tradition, yeah. Yeah, beautiful. All right, well, then the same kind of question. What about a film, movie, or a documentary? Oh, boy. Film, movie, or documentary. I watch a lot of documentaries. They're my favorite, but now that you say it, naturally, I'm going to draw a blank. <laughs> um, one of my favorite movies of all time is Shane. It's from, I think, the 50s. Uh, it was my favorite book growing up as a kid. It's a Western and and about uh, um, free grazers and sod busters and, and all, you know, the, the wild west of America and the frontier. And um, it's an old movie, um, but I definitely recommend it if you like Westerns. Uh, Shane is fantastic. Um, Saving Private Ryan has just the, the cinematic effect of Saving Private Ryan. I would recommend that to anybody to watch. Um, so probably those two, Shane and Saving Private Ryan. Who who played the lead in Shane? Was it Jimmy Stewart? No, let's see. Um, I can I'm see it in my to- head, but I'm drawing yeah, I can, too. Um, Van, I can't remember Van's last name, played the, the protagonist. And then, yeah, now, now that you're, I can't think of the other guy's name. It'll come to me as soon as we get done with this. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, speaking of great people, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? As I look back on the people, like you've had so many people that I would recommend. Um, you know, there, there are some people I know in Indianapolis who are doing some great work, um, like Pro Team Tactical Performance, is they do work with our fire department uh, on the tactical athlete side of things um, founded by um, Jim Sorgi, who uh, retired from the Colts. Uh, he was a quarterback for the Colts and uh, his business partner played pro baseball in the Cardinals organization. And they um, have family members who are in law enforcement and the fire service. So they come at it from that perspective, but um, I think they add a lot of value to this conversation about the fitness side of it, both from, exercise and injury prevention, as well as behavioral health, uh, definite passion to them. Beautiful. That sounds like a great suggestion. Is, is that someone you could connect me with? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Fantastic. All right. We'll have to make that happen then. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, then the last question, now we've already talked about meditation, and yoga. Are there any other things that you do to decompress? Um, well, I keep bees. Um, which is pretty cool. Like it's uh, just something totally different, but uh, beekeeping is useful. I run, uh, used to hate running. I don't run for very long, like at least maybe compared to other people. I like to jog for two miles or else go rucking, uh, just putting on a backpack with some weight in it and walking some trails. Um, Definitely helps me decompress meditation, you know, the spiritual side of things. I'm not I'm not a very religious person, but I do consider myself a spiritual person. And I think that's totally possible um, that they're not, not necessarily the same thing. And I think that having that spiritual life and finding a purpose outside of this job, you know, you can still serve other people. If that's your guiding principle, figure that out so that you're not so terrified when it comes time to retire. Um, You're not scared of that and you're prepared for it. Like find out what gives you purpose. And take comfort in that and look forward to your life after this job. Because so many of us, this job is everything. And we should be happy to give this job up. That's something we can give back to the younger generation to take over for us. Um, so having that 
contemplation with yourself is a good way to decompress as well. That I know this isn't when this job's done, it's not the end of the road for me. I have other things and another life that I can live after this. Um, yoga, meditation, those are the big ones for me. Well, you brought up retiree. Just while we're on that topic, just quickly before we kind of make sure everyone knows where to find you, what's I think extremely sad is once we retire, and I'm you know technically retired from the fire service, um, you know we've ceased to be a stat. And with my observation, as you get into your 40s, 50s and transition out the fire service, that's when a lot of our men and women start to manifest the physical disease and the mental health um, issues that came from the job, yet none of them register in the statistics. So mm. I think they're forgotten about on paper. And then more often than not, they're, they're often forgotten about, you know, by the department that they adored. So just quickly, you know, what's, what's your perception of, the, you know, the the retired first responders of the world and, and are there any things that we can do better as current, you know, um, firefighters and law enforcement to maybe bridge that gap and, and stop it being such a jarring end to a career? I think one thing we can do is, is have, when we know people are going to retire, we know people like in Indiana are going to the drop where we know they're going to retire on a certain date. Can we set up some type of out processing, like a, a retirees academy? We have an academy when people get on the job. Is there something where we can draw from the knowledge of, of other retirees, asking them what's, you know, five things you wish you would have known the day you retired? And let's build a curriculum off of that so we can teach our people who are leaving this job the things that they're not even thinking about yet, that other retirees can have, have walked that that path can help them with. Um, when it comes to things like peer support, if you have a peer support team, involve your retirees in it. New, uh, FDNY's peer support program, I think, is entirely retirees. Um, keeps them involved. They help maintain their identity with the job so that they're still connected, and they bring a lot of credibility to your programs as well. Um, one of the things that we did here, um, uh, Local 416 worked with our employee assistance program all of our retirees get four sessions with our employee assistance program each year if they need it. Um, so they don't, you know, they may, may not have their city insurance anymore, but they still have access to some type of behavioral health care for four visits a year if they need that, um, which is huge. That's not something they've had before. Um, and even if you, again, if you have a peer support program, keep a list of your retirees and check, have one of your peers reach out check in with them after 30 days, you know, 90 days, six months, a year, come up with a way to, on a spreadsheet to monitor that for a year or two for each of your retirees um, and make sure somebody's checking in with them so that they don't get lost. What's your contact information? That's a big part of what, what we see is the only way we have to contact some of our people is their city email. And when they retire, they lose that. So now we don't know how to get a hold of them. So, if you're in peer support, get with your pension office, get with your local, if you uh, are a union agency, and find out how to get a hold of your retirees and just check in with them. Um, maintain that connection until you're sure they're on their feet, they have their hobbies, they have their life after this job, and they're going to be better off. Beautiful. Some great advice. I think that's that's you know an area that we can also do much better. I mean, the work week, obviously, I, I talked about a lot, but that transition out, because I know a lot of us you know, we identify as the responder, you know, that's our tribe, that's our community, that's our sense of purpose. And when that bay door comes down, 
all of those are gone. And some people transition very well. As you said, they have other things that remind them that they're a human being wearing a uniform. But I think years of, you know, shift work, sleep deprivation, organizational stress, a lot of these compounding factors, that's kind of what some people are clinging onto. And so you take that away, literally you snip it with a pair of scissors and it's gone. Same way as I hear, you know, special operations personnel, their ID doesn't even work on the base anymore. That's a very, very jarring experience for some men and women. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Brandon, I just want to say thank you so much. It's been such an amazing conversation. I feel like we barely scratched the surface of what you actually do, you know, in, in your department. And we've been talking for two hours. So I'm assuming we'll probably have to do a part two down the road as well. But I just want to say thank you for being so generous with your time. Thank you for sharing your story because I think that's a storytelling to me is so much more powerful and resonates so much more deeply than a PowerPoint presentation with statistics on, you know, mental health addiction, whatever the topic is. So, you know, you've been so generous with your time today and I just, uh, I appreciate it truly. Uh, uh, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Um, a bit side note, it did pop in my mind. Alan Ladd is the person who started in Shane. Um, <laughs> thank <so>. you. <laughs> But, uh, but no, thank you for having me on. Thanks for all you do. Um, it's an amazing podcast and the conversations are all valuable. Um, I'm glad to play some part in that. Thank you for having me.